Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by www.livinglies.wordpress.com, GTC Honored, and The Garfield Firm, serving all 50 states with news and analysis of the latest bank scams against borrowers, homeowners, consumers, and investors, and providing legal representation throughout Florida. This program is for general information only. It is not a solicitation for services or legal representation and should never be used as a substitute for advice from a licensed professional. And now, here's world-renowned financial expert, attorney, and blogger, Neil Garfield. And hello, this is Neil Garfield, and this is last Thursday in October, October 27, 2016, to be exact. And we have just 12 days until the end of political commercials. I'm looking forward to that. And I imagine everybody else is, too, regardless of which end of the political spectrum uh, they are on. Tonight, Charles Marshall joins me to continue the talk from last week about the elements of actually winning a foreclosure case. He has won cases, I've won cases, and as I've said, Patrick Junta in Fort Lauderdale has won cases, and dozens of other competent lawyers have won their cases by planning, preparing, and creating a strategy that gives them the best shot, even in the hostile environment of a judge who thinks our clients are deadbeats. We'll be talking about why lawyers win their cases when defending against foreclosures. To start with, it is all about the fact that these foreclosures are wrongful in every sense of the word. The people who are pursuing the forced sales of property are part of a larger scheme to steal money and property from investors and homeowners alike. You might not see it much, but I have published some decisions in which I have won based on exactly that theme, and there are dozens of lawyers across the country who have won cases because the entire scheme of securitization is just an illusion. But most of the cases that are won are quickly settled with the title or payment of money or both, and then subject to a seal of confidentiality. So you hear about the losses, but you generally don't hear about all the wins. And that's the way the bankers want it. We're going to talk a bit tonight about perseverance and fighting it out. Of course, the decision to go into litigation is a personal one, And it's not based upon what I think or what Charles thinks or what anybody else thinks. It's a matter of what you think. But if you are not fighting it out, you are, um, uh, that's your prerogative, but you're also giving up a good chance of holding on to your home. It's true that 95% of all foreclosures go through without a hitch. 
The property is sold. That's because 95% of the people out there don't put up a defense. Those that do are put on hold, and many of those who persevere throughout the litigation end up winning, winning in the sense of outright winning or a modification that they were told was out of reach. And we're hearing from the banks in a relentless uh, slew of placed articles throughout all kinds of media that foreclosures are at a nine-year low. They're trying to create the impression that the foreclosure crisis is over. I can tell you that based on their own figures uh, over the years, we know that we've had between 8 and 9 million foreclosures so far since the foreclosure crisis began, and we've got another 6 or 7 million now. The reason why they're citing certain figures, it's like playing with the political polls, they're citing certain figures that show that it's a nine-year low when, in fact, all they're doing is stretching them out. So for the six or seven million that we have yet to go, and it may be a lot more than that if we end up with another recession, we will see instead of them being done in about a million a year or something like that, they will the banks will do it at maybe, you know, 60 or 70% of that to keep the appearance of foreclosure activity as being in decline. And the way lawyers win is also by knowing how to operate in a courtroom. Living Lies is coming out with a short mini-seminar soon on objections which most lawyers don't like to make because they're afraid of getting the judge irritated. I tell those lawyers that if they want to do this work, they must be prepared to get a pie in the face because they, the lawyers, are the warriors who are fighting the battles that their clients can't fight. I don't need to tell Charles Marshall that because that's the way he practices. He understands why he's in the courtroom and what he needs to do. Last week, Charles and I discussed the beginning of uh, half of strategic planning for a lawsuit campaign encompassing several elements, pre-foreclosure negotiation and settlement demands, filing of a lawsuit in non-judicial states and defending in judicial states, demurs, motion to dismiss, discovery, motions for summary judgment, pre-trial prep and motions, pre-trial orders, the trial itself, appeals, post-appeal judgment options, post-sale lawsuits for wrongful foreclosure. We ran out of time uh, getting through about just about half of that, and so I invited Charles to rejoin me uh, uh, for tonight's show to complete that very important discussion. I'm broadcasting live from Broward County, Florida, brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm with offices in South Florida. 
And this show is specially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners just like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not yet contributors, we ask that you hit the donate button on the blog or call 202-838-6345. 6345 spells my name, Neil, N-E-I-L, which is our new main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, if the blog has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. I keep inviting Charles back to the show, and I'm encouraging him to host or co-host or even start his own show. This is a guy who thinks, who plans, who cares about the result, not just whether he can justify the fee he charged. And by the way, again, I will give another nudge on the article he promised me for the blog. Charles Marshall is an attorney, with a good attorney, with offices in San Diego County. He operates throughout California, practices in all four federal California district courts of appeal, and has been lead attorney in appeals pending before the Ninth Circuit and the, I'm sorry, uh, the six state appellate districts. He can be reached at 619-807-2628. Charles, welcome back. Uh, Neil, as always, great to be back on your show. Yes, that blog post is coming. And for all the other good words, and for all the other good words that you were relating just now, uh, coordinating on the show, I, I can only say that uh, I'm, I'm ready to coordinate uh, fully and completely as you and I have such a similar approach. And, you know, we've got a a fount of knowledge here that it, it does have to get out. I mean, and your radio program is a great way to get out the knowledge of what we need to do on our side to compete and to prevail for all the borrowers there. Well, that's the idea. And by the way, I'll tell our listeners that um, you can send the link to this show or any show to friends of yours and let them listen. No charge, nothing. Uh, we want to get the word out. So, Charles, how about we summarize uh, the uh, the topics that we went through last week and completed and then go on to the topics that we didn't reach, uh, starting with... Uh, pre-foreclosure negotiation and settlement demands. Can you give us a quick summary for those people who are joining us who didn't hear last week's show? Uh, sure, absolutely. I mean, the key there, and this is something that as a borrower you're going to want to look at this off and on throughout your lawsuit, but it's especially important before you even file your lawsuit, you need to have some sense of what your case is worth. And to have an assessment of that, you need to have your attorney do even a back-of-the-envelope rendering of, okay, this is my case. These are how the facts and the law have lined up in my case. 
And so, of course, just parenthetically, as the client, as the borrower, even as, you know, the man or woman on the street who's going to take this on on your own, at least initially, before you file that lawsuit, whoever you're using, it's critical for you to have some idea of settlement value. Because, you know, in a perfect world, you wouldn't have to sue. In the real world, you're usually going to have to sue to get the result you want in these types of cases. But there will be some cases where you can get a quick result, and even where you can't, your actual filed lawsuit will go much better if you know what your settlement value is. And and settlement value, you know, um, repeating this is not redundant, bringing it up in this new show I think is important for, for new listeners or those who didn't get last week's show. But even if you did hear last week's show, you need to, you know, say this almost as a mantra. Settlement value is typically and usually what will the fact finder do at trial? So if you have a jury, it's what the jury would do. If it's a bench trial, it's what the judge would do. Are they likely to side with you? Are they likely to um, decide with the other side? And what are the fact and, and legal-based variables that will determine that calculus? Once you've got a good sense of how likely you are to prevail at trial, then you can step back from that analysis, and that will tell you what your settlement value is. If you had a slam-dunk case and it was a personal injury case, you can monetize that type of thing down to $100 increments. If you're in a foreclosure case, things are more open-ended and your end game is less certain, that means your settlement value is also less certain. However, you have to have some sense of what that settlement value is. That's why at a minimum, even if you're going uh, with a lawsuit on your own, you need to have somebody analyze your documents and analyze the prospects for prevailing in the legal district you're in, whether it's federal court, state court, some sense of who your judge is going to be, all those types of variables weigh into this calculus. Okay. So um, I'll summarize a little bit about uh, uh, three of the other uh, subjects that we covered last week. In non-judicial states, you have to file a lawsuit to stop the sale. In judicial states, it's the bank, for lack of a better word, who has to file the lawsuit to get the property sold. So in the non-judicial states, you have an odd thing to do, which is file a lawsuit essentially denying the allegations that the bank would make if they filed a lawsuit and then, in effect, prove your denial. There's a way of doing that, and uh, uh, I don't think that due process has necessarily been followed in in non-judicial states, Uh, but it's much easier in a judicial state where they have to make allegations, prove their allegations, And as I personally have found, it's a lot easier to rest at the conclusion of the bank's case without ever putting on a single piece of evidence on my own. And that's because 
they didn't make their case because I objected and I prevented evidence from getting admitted into the court record. Now, regardless of whether you're in a non-judicial state or in a judicial state, whatever you file is going to be met with a motion. It's called the demurra in California, motion to dismiss uh, or a motion to strike which basically says you're not, you, you don't have standing, you don't have any right to raise these defenses, uh, uh, we're holding the note, that gives us a presumption that we can just sell your property. Well, if that's how simple it was, we wouldn't need a court system, would we? They'd be able to go up to like an ATM type device and feed in the note and get out a sale date and it would be over wouldn't need a court but you do need courts in both non-judicial and judicial states because they have to prove their case they can't just assume it that's a mistake that a lot of judges have made they've got a lot of them have been reversed and a lot of those cases have been settled under seal of confidentiality then in discovery there's two trains of thought, and there's no general rule. You have to go on a case-by-case -case basis as to whether or not you're going to go for discovery, uh, whether you're going to just file the discovery and not try to enforce it and then use that against them later, or if you actually want to do the discovery, um, whether you're going to file motions to compel and memorandums to make sure that you get it, and then there's whether you're going to do the discovery because do you really want to highlight the weaknesses in their case. These are decisions for a lawyer to make, and it's one of the main reasons why pro se litigants fail. And then we covered motions for summary judgment, and uh, Charles, I'll let you cover that. Oh, absolutely. Uh, in terms of motions for summary judgment, uh, the way you have to look at that, particularly in California, where, again, typically you would be the plaintiff because of the non-judicial foreclosure uh, aspect to the way that foreclosures are handled in California typically. So what, what you need to keep in mind with motions for summary judgment and, is that you can expect them if your case is moving to trial on certain causes of action. There are a lot of my cases moving to trial, these types of cases moving to trial on homeowner bill of rights violations in California. And so one of the ways that the defendant servicers and nominal lenders try to kill these cases is by filing motions for summary judgment. And what a motion for summary judgment is Compared to a motion to dismiss, you know, which again, that's a demure in California, as Neil was saying. And it's important to distinguish the two of those. A motion to dismiss is basically saying you have no case at all. In other words, no matter what legal theory you might present your case under, your case is not a real case and the defense does not have to respond. A motion for summary judgment is, is basically saying legally that 
your specific case and the way you pled it, the, the actual arguments and the actual facts you've tied to those arguments, that when taken in total, those are insufficient for you to legally be able to prevail. So in, in effect, with a motion for summary judgment, the defendant is saying, look, you've got your, your causes of action, you've got your facts, you know, you may even be past the point where your motion to dismiss, you prevailed on that months ago. And so theoretically you might have a general case, but this specific case, the way you've lined it up as to the facts and the law, we're saying as a defendant, and again, the foreclosure environment, we're talking about servicers are nominal trust holders in the vast majority of cases. We're saying that you don't have a case. And unfortunately, a lot of judges, these same judges who seem so supportive of the case and who let the case go through at the motion to dismiss level, at the demure level, then on a motion for summary judgment, those same judges will often say, not always, of course, you know, which is why our side is, is ever vigilant and ever meticulous and you know, we have to be very specific in our pleading especially at this stage of the motion for summary judgment. Um, Bottom line, though, a lot of judges will sign off on that. So your case is moving forward. This is yet another place where you can run into uh, a roadblock and where your case can even be dismissed. And I would add that. Yeah, go ahead. I, I I would add to that that it's good to file a counter motion for summary judgment. And keep in mind... As far as I know, I can't think of a, a single instance in which a judge was reversed for denying a motion for summary judgment. Nobody can claim that they were hurt by that except that they had to go to trial. So you do have a little leverage against the motion for summary judgment. And as Mark Stopa found out in, where is he located? Tampa, I think. Um he had some success. He had a string of successes where he filed motions, counter motions for summary judgment and an affidavit along with a motion to strike the other side's affidavit as being insufficient. And when all was said and done, the only thing left was his motion for summary judgment and his affidavit, and he won. Well, obviously the banks adjusted the way they did things, so that strategy is probably not a viable strategy anymore, but it does give you an idea as to the importance and uh, in the planning process of the litigation to consider what might happen on summary judgment. Moving on, we have pretrial prep and, and motions and pretrial orders. And I'll start off by simply saying uh, those pretrial orders depends on the judge. But very often, a pretrial order will have an instruction that not only is supposed to show what you got and what you're going to present at trial, but it will also have a paragraph in there that says, if you're going to have any objections to any of this evidence, you need to raise it now to preserve it for trial. 
So when the report is issued to the court, or even where there is no report to the court, you make it clear on record that you will have an objection to that evidence, or else the objection is waived. And I had that recently happen in the case that I eventually won, but the fact is all this evidence came in. Now, sometimes that can work for you, and it did in that case, but if you've got objections you, and you've got a pretrial order, you need to raise it at the time specified in the order. And judges are getting increasingly annoyed with lawyers who think that they can change a judge's order. So even though the two lawyers agree, the judge will say, yeah, but I didn't agree. So when you're dealing with pretrial orders, make sure you read every word and that you comply with every word. So, Charles, what are the briefly what what are the uh, main issues that you see and that you do in in preparation for trial, and what motions do you file in preparation for trial? Well, motions in lemonade are a critical component to the vast majority of, of these foreclosure trials as, frankly, in any trial. I did want to go back just briefly to, to mention what you, had, you were describing in terms of pretrial orders. Uh, it's very important in California, whether you're in federal or state court, and I think this is true as well in many judicial foreclosure states, including Florida, where Neil is, um, but as for California, virtually every case, every judge, you will get a case management framing up your case that includes what amounts to a pretrial order. And it'll tell you when discovery has to be completed. It'll be based on ver various trigger points. It's not going to say it needs to be completed by a, a certain date because discovery and other types of legal maneuvers within a, tri a trial setting are going to be situation dependent and each thing that you do triggers another day. So when it comes to doing motions before trial and that type of thing, um, there is almost invariably going to be a set order on that. And as Neil was saying, if you violate that, even if you get a stipulation from the other side, there's a good chance the judge is going to say no. So it's absolutely critical. Again, even if you're litigating on your own, you need to read the initial paperwork, whether it's federal or state, because it, it also brings up things like there are a lot of judges in California, federal and state again. They want courtesy copies of everything you file. And the reason for that is the filing systems have become, particularly at the state level, they've become very um, bogged down and inefficient. So you could have a motion on calendar if the judge doesn't get the paper related to that um, for two or three weeks, which is sometimes the case, then the judge has to look at the, the paperwork before your, uh, your, your hearing that morning or that afternoon. They need to have that information in advance you literally have to serve courtesy copies. Um, you know, this is how bogged down the system can become. In terms of 
the pretrial prep that I do and other motions, uh, you know, again, motions in limine are critical, and if your side isn't bringing them up, the other side probably will first. And since you're on the plaintiff side in California typically, you're going to want to, to be proactive and you bring these first. And a motion in limine is basically, it's to limit. I mean, that's basically what limine means in Latin. It means you're limiting something. In this case, you're limiting or seeking for the court to exclude certain types of evidence. And it's, it's especially helpful for both sides to be able to get the judge to say, on this type of issue, on this type of question, the court will exclude the evidence. Or you may also, in your motion in limine, frame an issue as something that should be included. Though typically, these are directed at excluding evidence. And if the other side puts out their motion in limine first, then you need to respond to that. But again, it's absolutely critical because if an emotion in limine is granted from either side, it will literally exclude certain types of evidence from being presented. I mean, when I'm in unlawful detainer cases, for instance, in California, even, even though it's a foreclosure case, you think title would be more critical than ever to be analyzed. Under California law, the other side can go in, which is the plaintiff side, and say, look, we bought this at a foreclosure sale. Title really isn't an issue. Here is what they'll say. This case is really about possession only, and clearly this tenant never had a lease here, so they're illegal. Therefore, possession only, we should get the, we should get the uh, subject property. And so they'll bring a motion in limine excluding any significant discussion of title. Of course, that doesn't exclude them bringing the minimal showing of title to show that they quote unquote bought the property at a trust, you know, at a trustee sale and then recorded a trustee deed upon sale. But apart from that, they'll try to get the uh, discussion of title excluded. And if you, as the defendant in that type of unlawful detainer case in California, if you don't fight that, your chances of prevailing in your case go from small to tiny. And this type of thing shows up at regular foreclosure cases as well. It's absolutely critical that you address these motions in limine and that you bring your own motions. Um, what's also important in terms of pre-trial preparation is, you know, when you get to trial, you're going to have to have made arrangements for jury instructions and that type of thing if you have a jury. And if there are other critical components to your specific trial, you have to have brought the, the proper motions in advance. And sometimes your timeline for doing that, you know, it may be a week to two weeks out from trial, but if you blow those timelines, you're in deep trouble, which is why you have to go back to the pretrial scheduling order, you know, that both Neil and I were discussing. Another reason why pro se litigants lose because they don't understand the importance of some of the papers that they're getting. And I guess I would uh, piggyback on what you're saying, and I think I mentioned this last week, you've got to know the narrative of your own case. What is the story that you're promoting? 
and what is the story that you want to undermine from the other side. That is going to govern a lot of your pretrial preparation and your motions in limine and your conduct at trial. So, for example, you know, uh, you might want to object on hearsay when they bring up the pooling and servicing agreement uh, and they're trying not to put it in evidence. It's an interesting task there because if they do put it in evidence, then the whole thing is in evidence and you can go after any part of it. But what they generally will try to do, not always, is to have the witness talk about what's in the PSA and for the unaware trial lawyer uh, or pro se litigant, he doesn't understand that the testimony from the witness is hearsay because the document that he's giving voice to has not been admitted in evidence. And there's lots of other objections on foundation and best evidence and so forth that need to be raised at trial if you want to limit the ability of the other side to make their case and that you have to be prepared for, especially in a non-judicial state, uh, if you've got an awake lawyer on the other side who knows how to use objections. Objections are like scalpels to trial lawyers. If you know how to use them, you can alter the whole trajectory of the case. Now, I mentioned that you can win, and I, and I reiterate that you, you can and you should win. Uh, but we all know that judges don't, uh, in the majority, don't see it that way. And in an increasing uh, frequency, they're getting reversed. But they're getting reversed because there was a proper appeal that was timely made, just like objections. If they're not timely made, they're waived. You can't wait after a string of questions and then object. You're done. Uh, there are time limits in which, in which you can file a notice of hearing, uh, I'm sorry, a notice of appeal, um, and there's a whole planning process for the appeals. Charles? Um, yes, I'd, uh, I'd love to talk about appeals. One thing that I will talk about just briefly before addressing that is in terms of actual executed trials, I can't emphasize enough how important what Neil, Neil just said about that. Um, it's not just objections, and those are absolutely critical. The whole trial procedure is this arcane, obscure world where if you're a pro se or pro, pro litigant, there's no reason why you would know anything about it. In fact, if you were just a regular attorney who didn't have any trial experience and hadn't done the proper preparation prior to being at a specific trial, you probably would be toast, literally. Uh, the, the amount of detailed preparation and learned acumen you have to bring to a trial is really quite extraordinary. So even if you've gone this, this case on your own up to a certain point, it's critical you have a trial practitioner who knows what they're doing when you get to trial. I actually moved for a directed verdict in a case 
where I knew that my my own witness, my own client, was not going to be credible on the stand. Not because my client would be lying, but because my client did not present well. I'd already seen this in a deposition. This is not a, an uncommon situation in a lot of these types of cases. So theoretically, it was risky to move for a directed verdict, but I already knew everything that had happened before. I knew that during the presentation of the case from the other side, because in this case, I was actually on the defense side. It was not a plaintiff's case. It was a defense case. And the plaintiff simply didn't present their case properly. And how did I know that? I knew that because I've been doing this a long time, and I've been to a lot of trials. So I won the directed verdict. It was a close call. I knew that if my, my client went on the stand, that they would likely say things that would greatly compromise the case. So I'm 100% in agreement with Neil about, you know, the importance of objections and just really knowing what you're doing when you're at trial. When it comes to appeals, you know, the notice of appeal is the absolute um, most critical thing you file in an appeal. And it's the quickest. I mean, the notice of appeal in every state, it doesn't matter where you're talking about. It's a simple form. Uh, it sometimes can take only 15 or 20 minutes to fill out. Um, on the other hand, appeals are a jurisdictional issue. So, you know, everybody in the legal system, whether they're whether they're on their own or whether they have an attorney, we're all used to manipulating and finessing deadlines and guidelines. You cannot finesse an appeal when it comes to the timing. It's a jurisdictional issue. If you miss the timing, whether you're talking 30 days in federal typically or 60 days in California for state state cases, you know, that's going to be based on a number of different events. When the order was generated, when the judgment was in, in, generated, when the notice of order or the notice of judgment was generated, and you, you as the attorney or the borrower, you need to know which one of those triggering events is the date you need to abide by. So it's a, actually a somewhat complicated um, analysis that has to go into determining that date. If you miss that date by even one day, you're toast. You can't bring your appeal. And the other thing that's different with a notice of appeal because of a jurisdictional issue is that normally if, if your response date fell, fell on a weekend, you'd have the next court day to respond. Not so with appeals. You have to respond the previous court day. So as far as the appeals themselves go, you're going to have an opening brief on the plaintiff's side. You're going to have a respondent's brief on the defendant's side. And then just like with regular pleading, whoever is the plaintiff will do a reply brief. And it's absolutely critical that you identify the issues and that you brief everything as fully as possible and that you base everything on a really specific workup of, of the law and that you cite the proper cases. I mean, as important as it is to present your case properly, it's even more important that you present your appeal properly because if you're in the home and the other side is not moving against you because of... Uh, your case being on appeal, particularly in California where you're the plaintiff, the strength of your appeal 
is going to be the basis for determining whether or not sales go forward against you. And I, I just want to piggyback in there uh, and move on. We're going to run out of time again. Uh, the biggest mistake that virtually all pro se litigants make and a fair number of lawyers make is that an appeal is not a trial where they consider new evidence or they try the case or anything like that. An appeal is a review of what has already occurred on record. If it's not on record, they won't do anything about whatever it is you, that you're complaining about. And their consideration of evidence is going to be limited to whether or not the court abused its discretion in allowing the evidence to be admitted into the court record, and secondly, as to whether or not the court was wrong in using that evidence to arrive at a judgment. And the test is, is you know, the, the statistics are against you because uh, the real test is whether the judge had any basis at all to have arrived at the final order or final judgment that was entered. If, if, the, if that is the case, then they're going to affirm the decision of the trial judge even if they don't technically agree with him. So just moving on very quickly, Charles, what are the post-appeal judgment options? And I'll just mention, as we've mentioned before, that there are lawsuits for wrongful foreclosure even when it's over. Well, in California, um, oftentimes, if you're still on the property, if you're still the record title holder, you know, even, even doing something like a loan workout to, to buy time while you set up other possibilities for the property, even if it includes selling the property, anything that will buy time post-judgment will lead you to fight for another day. And even if you're in a situation where, there's always an, where there's, there is already an active unlawful detainer or some other post-sale scenario, if you get into some kind of a negotiation, that can create options where there didn't seem to be other options. I mean, the bottom line is the more determined you are to keep, keep yourself either in the property or keep yourself living there, even after the sale in California, if you've been doing it for, for months, especially for years, then that gets noticed. That gets traction. And even if you reach a point where your appeal is done and you didn't win the appeal, continuing to fight, continuing to negotiate, continuing to come up with options, you you will still be able to reverse the process sometimes. And uh, you know, amen. Will come up with a amen. Amen to that. Uh, the point being, uh, some of you, maybe most of you, know what I'm about to tell you. Those people who just wouldn't let go and kept pressing, even after judgments and appeals were lost and all that, they're still in their houses eight, ten years later. 
I want to thank Charles for being on the show again and being so informative. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lines Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www.livinglies.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688. The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.